look closely and see, here is Jesus. Dear friends, when we gather for worship on Sunday mornings, it is not a humdrum event to be marked off and checked off in some kind of list of prosaic activities um, in which we order our lives, but is a, is a seminal moment. It is an encounter with the living God. To worship God in the season of Easter or in any time is to affirm the great truth that there is so much more going on in our lives beyond our understanding, certainly beyond our control, and that we are called into a contact with the ineffable and immortal, unending love of God which expresses itself in the depths of our despair, that nothing is beyond the knowledge of God or the, beyond the power of God to have a profound and transformative effect in our lives. Our activities on Sunday morning, our worship of God, is truly intended, as my grandmother said, to use our hands to peel back the layers of our lives, to look underneath what is on the surface to that which lies deeply within and reveals the presence of God. So look and see, here is Jesus is the great message of the gospel. Each of the gospels tells the stories of Jesus' appearances to his disciples and his dearest friends and to the apostles in the day and the weeks following his resurrection. And Luke alone tells of six such encounters. This morning's uh, reading comes from the fifth, the next to the last encounter that the disciples have with Jesus. It comes in the 24th chapter, as all they all do. And you will remember um, that the disciples, Cleopas and a companion, in their grief following the death of Jesus on Friday, following the Sabbath, which is to say Sunday, they were walking home to Emmaus, disconsolate and distraught, discouraged and convinced that the story of God's saving love in Jesus had come to an unexpected and terrible end in his crucifixion, this horrific manner of torturing people to death perfected by the mendacity of the Roman Empire. And on that road, they had an encounter with a stranger who they did not, in their grief, see. They did not recognize that it was Christ raised from the dead. Through their tears of grief, they could not perceive that which was right before them. And he told them how in all of scripture it was foretold that the Christ must suffer these things. And still, they don't understand, but when they stopped at the inn at Emmaus, when he took the bread, when he broke it, the eyes of Cleopas and his companion were opened, and they recognized him the resurrected Christ. And so Cleopas and his companion rushed back to Rome to tell the apostles and all those who loved Jesus, who said, yes, he's also appeared to us as well. 
Now they'd been told earlier in the day by the women and Peter had gone to the tomb to confirm that it was empty but he didn't see Jesus so they don't really believe the women because in the ancient world women were not treated with respect and their testimony was not considered credible. Now he had appeared to them once and now Cleopas and his companions say he appeared to them in the breaking of the bread. And so we pick up the narrative at verse 36. While they were talking among themselves about all these things that had happened, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and terrified. They thought that they were seeing a ghost. He said to them, why are you frightened? Why are doubts arising in your hearts? Look at my hands and at my feet. See that it is I, myself. Touch me and see. For a ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet, that is to say, his wounds. Well, in their joy, they were disbelieving and still wondering. He said to them, have you anything here to eat? And so they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it, and he ate in their presence. Let me pause there for just a moment. He appears to them. They're inside. They're hiding. They're afraid of the crowds and the religious authorities who have visited upon Jesus in their ability to conspire and collude with the hands of Rome, this terrible death, and they fear that the same might await them. They are still not quite sure what has happened. We have the advantage of 2,000 years of perspective. But these men and women are hiding, they are undercover, because as far as they can tell and know in the light of their experiences in life up to this point, that when you're dead, you're dead. And despite what Jesus said to them about the resurrection of the dead, who could really believe what he was saying? And so when he appears to them, they are at first afraid afraid not only of what's transpiring in front of them, a ghost, and afraid of what awaits them outside the door, the hands of Rome. And so the first thing that Jesus says to them is, peace be with you. The Hebrew word for peace is, of course, shalom, which means peace, but wholeness, wellness. This holistic sense of the goodness of life. Shalom is a universal greeting of hello and goodbye. It's a blessing to pray that the peace of God, the wholeness, the love of God will be a person. Shalom. In Greek, erene, erene, he says. Now what they want is a word of assurance that they don't need to be afraid. He doesn't say to them, don't worry, everything will be okay. I'm here, going to take care of everything. You don't need to be afraid. What they want is security. 
what they get is better. Because security ultimately entails staying behind some locked door, whether it's an actual door and lock, or whether it's in an enclave of life where certain people are kept out and others are allowed in, whether it's behind a, a field and a, an array of armaments that hold the enemy at bay, security, that is to say, to hold that which strikes fear into our hearts at bay, if that's what you want, you'll never really have peace because it's like building a 10-foot wall. All you have to do is build an 11-foot ladder. There's no way to secure ourselves, to hide. You can run, but you cannot hide. But what God can offer to us, what Jesus does offer to us here, is that deep peace of the wholeness, the presence, the love, the real security of knowing that in all of the circumstances of your life, you dwell in the bosom of God. And so he's really there. It's interesting, in all the Gospels, particularly in Luke and in John, he wants the disciples to see his wounds, to touch his wounds. Resurrection does not entail the eradication of the woundedness of Jesus. It is the wounded, crucified Christ who is resurrected from the dead. He hasn't had plastic surgery to cover up the wounds. The wounds are the source of the healing of the world and of his, his resurrection by God's mighty power. It's because and through and in his suffering that God raises him from the dead and so promises to raise us as well, to call us out of the places of death and fear and seeking for some kind of security if we can only build a lock that is big enough to instead liberate us. So it's his woundedness that makes it clear that it's really Jesus, and it's his eating of a broiled piece of fish that reassures us that it's not a ghost, it is, a, it is Jesus in some kind of new and miraculous form who is with them. Verse 44, And then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds so that they might understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins be proclaimed to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things. You are my witnesses of these things. The early Christians struggled to understand 
how a crucified itinerant preacher, healer, carpenter from Nazareth, who comes under the hand of Rome and suffers this ignominious defeat and death, can be the Messiah. It's through their reading of the book of the prophet Isaiah, and particularly those sections which include the songs of the suffering servant, that they begin to understand that the Messiah brings us salvation through suffering, not for some kind of substitutionary atonement, but that in Jesus, God enters into the fullness of our human condition and reassures us that in all the troubles of our lives, God is never absent from us, but is with us, that the current circumstances may threaten and suggest that evil and death will reign supreme, but God is not done with us yet. And now, these peasants from Galilee will be the witnesses of this deep truth. And so they cease to be afraid. They come out from behind their locked doors and they move about the city and they go to the temple and they preach and they heal and they are threatened and they are arrested and beaten for their ministry. But something has overtaken them to the extent that they cannot resist what Jesus has given them to do to be witnesses to the way in which God is entering into the world, has entered into the world in a new and wondrous, transformative way. We live in a culture that suggests, suggests that security and to be saved from any kind of pain and suffering is almost the goal of life. In denial of the deep understanding that to be alive is, in fact, to suffer. But does that suffering defeat us? Or does God enter into the fullness of that suffering to remind us that though evil and injustice, the Romans in their day, and all the forces of oppression that reign in our day, the great economic disparity, the growing gap, the rich do literally get richer <laughs> by the day, and the poor do, in fact, become poorer by the day in our own day and time. This is not a fable, a myth from history. This is the contemporary reality in which we live. Black and brown people in America suffer because they are black and brown. Make no mistake. The trouble of the first century, the trouble of the 21st century, are more similar than we would care to admit. And so we must not lose heart, particularly in this season of Easter, which is an inherently and necessarily a season of hope. 
From Luke's second volume, he writes the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, his second volume which tells the, the exploits, the adventures, the accomplishments of these early followers of Jesus. And the chapter, third chapter, opens up with the story of Peter and John going, and there's a beggar who sits out the be- outside the beautiful gate every day. People are used to seeing him, and he begs for alms, and people give him a penny or half a penny or some small coin, and he's just part of the landscape, as it were. But one day, Peter and John, as they're going into the temple, they respond to him and they say, we don't have gold or silver to give you, but what we do have, we will give you. In the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. And lo and behold, the man stands up and walks. They give him what they have, which is trust in this transformative, resurrected Christ which causes great crowds uh, to gather, and they're clinging together, and they want to know what this could possibly mean. And so in verse 12, when Peter saw the crowds, he addressed the people. He said, you Israelites, this is a compliment, you Israelites, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we had made him walk? The people have come thinking that Peter and John are magicians, miracle workers, that they have themselves access to some kind of secret knowledge or power, and they want to know what it is. And he says, no, no, we're children of Israel. The conflicts of the time of Peter and John at the early, early chapters, indeed the entire book of the Acts of the Apostles, is an intra-Jewish conflict. It's not a conflict between Jews and Christians, Everybody involved at this point in the narrative are Jews. It's a question about what does Jesus of Nazareth mean in the context of our Judaism? It is not through our own power of piety that we made him walk. Verse 13, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our ancestors has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you religious leaders handed over to be rejected in the presence of Pilate, though Pilate had decided to release him. But you rejected the Holy and Righteous One and asked to have a murderer given to you. And so you killed the author of life, whom God had raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And by faith in his name, his name himself has made known to this man and made him strong whom you now see and know. The faith that is through Jesus has given him this renewed health in the presence of all of you. These are days when our spirits are sorely tested by the ravages of the pandemic, our grief, over so much violence in our world, the seemingly unending raft of mass shootings just on Friday, another eight. Hundreds of people, thousands of people killed in the epidemic of mass violence and the consequences of a nation that is awash with guns. 
we really do seem to have lost our minds, don't we? The egregious abuse of power in which George Floyd in nine and a half minutes found his life breath literally crushed from his body under the knees of a police officer sworn to serve and protect the people of Minneapolis. The anger, the disconsolation, the discouragement that things we feel are not going to get better. To step out from behind the, the fear and the, the discouragement that weighs us down and like Peter and John and the other disciples to step out into the fullness of the light of the resurrection and recognize that God simply is not done with us yet. Violence, of course, is not restricted to our own nation. You may remember the story of Oscar Umansor Torres, a friend of this congregation who came from El Salvador um, with his family many years ago, seeking work with two children and one born here. And then after a period of time, they had returned to El Salvador, grieving for the family that they had left behind. And the Oscar subsequently returned by himself to earn money to sent back to his family. And our congregation helped Oscar to become a citizen of the United States and his family in El Salvador, suffering the great economic dysfunction of that terrible violence of the gangs which had become a de facto government under themselves. And one son died of cancer. The daughter, who was captured by the gangs and threatened with prostitution, whose mother ran out of the house to protect her daughter, both mother and daughter, to be killed in the presence of the one remaining child, Juan. And then Juan, as he goes into hiding and seeks to be saved from the same gangs, and how we have reached out through him and our contacts in El Salvador to ensure his safety, and then the work that we've done through Make the Road, that wonderful national organization that works with migrant people to be here legally, working with Oscar and applying for a visa for Juan to come to America is the child of a United States citizen. It's been a long and troubled road. And yesterday, Juan went to the embassy in Sao Salvador and sent on WhatsApp a photo of his Salvadoran passport with his visa to come to America. This is not the end of the conflict in El Salvador. It doesn't set all things to right but Juan Umansor Torres will be reunited with his father, Oscar, 
because of Make the Road Connecticut, and you, the people of First Church here in Fairfield, and those who have given so generously that these steps might be taken. The hope does persist. The light does shine out of the shadows. The life of God is made known even in the places of great suffering and of death. This is no small matter with which we are engaged. This is life-giving work, transformative engagement with the world. The church was born in a graveyard, but see how it has grown. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Thanks be to God. Amen.